Let's pray, shall we? Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words that we've just heard. Help us now, all these years after that letter was written, to hear again the nuggets of truth that you embedded there and to help us to apply them to our lives, especially in this season as we consider our giving here. For your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. Great, thank you. Um, you had a little bit of a bonus at the beginning of that reading. Did you notice that? And we didn't give you the ending. But that's just a way of things. So could you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 if you haven't got it there. Please have it open between verses 1 to 15. And we're going to be drawing our thoughts from that passage. You may know the expression, I can't see the woods for the trees. Do you know that expression? I cannot see the woods for the trees. What it means is that pressing matters, immediate matters, when these things come before us, because of those pressing matters, we lose sight of what is important, what is the bigger picture of what really matters. And sometimes we find ourselves caught up in trying to find answers among the urgent and the pressing and forget what is really, really important. Do you think that's true? Sometimes life just gets too busy and you forget what the purpose belying it is. A leader in thinking on relationship, a man called Simon Sinek, said this about this. All organisations start with why, but only great ones keep their why year after year. We all begin knowing why we do things, but we often drift from why we're doing things to just deal with the what before us the whole time. So speaking today, as we think about Commitment Sunday and as we continue this series on the long road to the cross... I wanted to draw us back through 2 Corinthians 8 to a position where we can remember the wood when we're looking at the trees, to recall the why in all the discussion of what, and finally to remember the who that underpins everything. And that's really important for life more generally. And for this reason, I want to begin in the middle of the passage that you've just heard read. Now, this is an interesting place to start, not at the beginning, as Julie Andrews would say, but in the middle. I'm going to start in the middle, at the heart. What really matters? Paul's letter, I think, is really curious because the majority of it talks about an offering that's being given and about the church and what it should be doing in that and what it should and shouldn't be doing in response. And yet in the middle of it, suddenly there is a verse that's dropped in which isn't about the offering at all, it's about Jesus. Right in the middle of it. The whole argument Paul sets out before the people in Corinth might be summed up in this phrase you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or perhaps for shorthand even, you know Jesus Christ. That's the important thing that is the why that is at the center of everything, the great why. And you know that once you know the why and you uh, remember Jesus, then one thing leads to another. And the answer to the what follows on soon after that. People in Christ who remember that they're in Christ behave like Christ. And so knowing Christ is what's really, really important. Jesus presents indeed a radical commentary on what it is to give through his life and through his death and through his resurrection. You know, we say, don't we, we said last week, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He didn't say that Jesus died for us, but that he gave his son. And it's my conviction that from the moment that he was born to the moment he ascended into heaven, in all of that time he was giving himself for us. All his life anticipated the cross in his attitude towards that. And that attitude, which is 
comes to a head at the cross is what we need to know when we think about our attitude to giving and indeed towards everything else around that. You know the grace of Jesus Christ. So, it's not a bad little uh, maxim that to put on your front door as you go out. You know the grace of Jesus Christ. So, when Paul bases his argument around Jesus, he doesn't do so around an idea, around an abstract concept. He does so around a person, a person that he encountered personally on the road to Damascus and, of course, probably knew physically during his life as well. We think that's almost certain. Paul doesn't address the church at Corinth saying, you understand the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a world of difference between those things, between understanding something and knowing it. This is not about head knowledge, but heart knowledge. You know in your experience the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. As one actor would have said, this time it's personal. And that's how we live our lives, through a personal relationship with a who, which leads to a why, which is expressed in a what of what we do. Always, at all times, Jesus is giving himself for us, and nowhere more so than at the cross, which is the climax of a period of Jesus emptying himself, as it says in Philippians, making himself nothing, becoming obedient even to death on a cross. And it's this death that Paul also puts at the heart of his case to the Corinthians, saying that the grace of God that they know in Christ is revealed in his self-giving in this verse. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Now I want to explain something this. I hope it's not too technical, but it's a language thing, so it interested me. That verse that we've just read talks about becoming poor and rich. And these are material things, aren't they? You know, rich, when you think of the word rich, your first thought is having a lot of money. And the first thought of poor is not having a lot of money. And throughout the Bible, there are material ways of expressing things based on material things, resources, possession, money, which actually are talking about a spiritual reality that's beyond that. Material things which form a metaphor that helps us to understand our spiritual reality. And what Jesus is saying is that our deepest well-being, our deepest wealth, is found when we find our life in Jesus. And that matters. It matters about what you're basing your life on. Where do you find that security? Where do you find that wealth, that extravagance, which you may not know if you don't have a lot of money? That's not the point that's here. True wealth isn't found in material well-being, but in our relationship with God, who is the source of everything. So Jesus himself said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in in and steal. In other words, live your life investing in that which is eternal, not which is temporary. And you'll find that the temporary things are added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be given to you. This is Jesus' teaching. And so it's interesting that Paul uses uses, and Jesus used material imagery about wealth to describe our own spiritual well-being 
And in this verse in Revelation, it shows it happened somewhere else as well, where he's talking to the church in Laodicea. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. What he's saying is, think differently about the world. Don't just think about the material well-being that you have. He's not saying that's irrelevant, and I'm going to come on to that in a minute. But what he's saying is that your true wealth is beyond that. And the church at Laodicea think that they're wealthy because they're using the wrong criteria. So what makes you wealthy? What's the most important thing in your life? What's the most valuable thing? What's indeed the top three? We all know the answer in church is always Jesus. Do you know what comes after that? To me, you, people, relationships. That's what matters more than anything else. The letter to this church, then, at Corinth, <coughs> excuse me, uh, centers on a why, the sacrifice of Jesus on, an, on our behalf. But it moves on to a what. Because although I've said that Jesus and Paul use metaphors based on material things to talk about spiritual well-being, it is also true that Jesus taught about money more than virtually anything else. So he wasn't an anti-materialist. He didn't believe that it's, important, that it's not important that we think about our money and our possessions and what we do with them. He famously wrote, didn't he, in the letter to, to Timothy, the love of money is the root of all evil. He didn't say money is the root of all evil. He said the love of money is the root of all evil. But it would equally be true to talk about how um, there is a thing of, called the loving use of money. So if the, if the love of money is the root of all evil, there is such a thing as the loving use of our money and what we do with it. After all, we live in a material world and we all have to pay bills and we all have to have needs, don't we? What matters is, is whether how we do that expresses the deeper wealth that we understand. Whether our what is an expression of our why here. And we can and should demonstrate our love to God and for one another by the way that we use our money. What do you think? I think that's a reasonable point. We can and should demonstrate our love for God in the way that we manage our money and our resources. And in any other area of our life. And this is why Paul moves from the why of Christ and the cross towards the what of the Corinthians' role in being generous to those who are most in need. And the word that Paul, Paul writes, the way he goes about this, is challenging and in fact is pretty provocative, I think, in the way in which he goes about this. He does this because actually this is a tale of two churches, this passage. Did you see it? It's a passage that refers to a church that's in Macedonia and a church that's in Corinth. In fact, he's writing to the church in Corinth about the church in Macedonia quite a lot of time. Do you think it's good to compare yourself to somebody else? That's a really interesting question. Are comparisons good or bad? Well, in certain circumstances, Paul is not averse to using a comparison, it seems. He doesn't want to make somebody feel bad. He wants to stimulate another person to, feel, to do good. And that's what he does here in this place. Macedonia is a different church to the one that's in Corinth. Macedonia is a church which is facing genuine need. They are impoverished. They are going through a very severe trial, is what it says. That's what the church in Macedonia is like. And yet, he talks about this church full of joy. Why? Because the church at Macedonia absolutely have the why at the center of their lives. 
That's what it seems to me. They are rejoicing in their relationship with Christ, with each other. And their action that comes from this surprises and delights Paul. Because after all, if you think someone's really hard-pressed, then they're, not, they're going to want to keep everything for themselves, aren't they? We need everything we've got. Have you ever travelled overseas to places which are not as well off as we are? Is it your experience in those places that people instinctively are more or less generous than we tend to be in, the, in our world? My experience is absolutely more. They are hard-pressed, they are impoverished, and yet, and yet. And the reason for that often is because they have a, a different priority distance of whys which lead to whats than we do. The message translation puts it like this. The pressure on them, this economic pressure, triggered something totally unexpected, an outpouring of poor, pure and generous love, of generous gifts. And then it goes on, as we say, the Macedonians respond to Paul's appeal, not beginning with their material circumstances, but with their spiritual wealth. In fact, they are eager because they say, look, just because we don't have very much, don't cut us out from being a part of this. There's an offering going on for people in Jerusalem who are poor. They've heard about this thing. He says, look, just because we're going through a hard time, don't ignore us. We want to be a part of us. Help us. Let us help. Let us help. Me, me. Let me help. Let me help. That's what they're saying in Macedonia. And so they pour out their offerings generously as a result of this. Look at this wonderful thing, the expression that was on that slide. Pleading for the privilege of helping out in the relief of poor Christians. Have you ever done that? Please let me help. Please let me give. Please. I really, really want to. Don't cut me out. Don't let me not be involved. Let me have my part in this. And so there's a direct connection between their overwhelming gratitude for the relationship they found in Christ and their freedom and their overwhelming desire to do what Christ is doing and be involved in that. The tone of Paul's writing is of genuine delight and surprise at that. I like that, don't you? I thought it was going to go this way. To be honest, you ever had this, this feeling in a meeting that you've gone into in work? You think it's going to go this way. This is going to be awful. I've been thinking about it for ages. And then you pray about it, this is, this is, and then you, you turn it over, and if you're like me, you worry a bit, and you lose a bit of sleep, and you toss and turn, you're up a couple of nights in the middle of the night, you still try and pray. Gradually, it gets nearer and nearer, and the day arrives, and you pray. Sometimes I've found that when you've been praying, you arrive at the meeting with a different feeling than the one you thought you were going to have. Suddenly, you come in more peaceful than you thought you were going to be. And sometimes God does something which you don't expect. Has that ever happened in your life? God has done something that you didn't expect? And when it does, it delights you. Wow, isn't this good? I always say, should it, is it bad that I'm surprised when God answers prayers? I, I, I think it's, it's just human, to be honest with you. We've had things where God has answered prayer in hungry prayer in the last 18 months. And I've gone home with a huge smile on my face. Yes. Yes, I didn't expect that. What a brilliant answer to prayer. And what Paul feels about the church in Macedonia when they come, turn up with this offering and he looks at it and thinks, goodness me, where did all this come from? He says, but they love Jesus, don't they? And they want to be involved. And it's got a note that says here, so glad to be of help, it says, from the church in Macedonia. I don't know if that's true, actually. I just made that bit up. So glad to be of help. 
One of our kids, I won't tell you who it is, used to say when they were younger, happy to help, happy to help, used to come around saying that all the time. What a great expression. Happy to help. So, so pleased to be of help. That's what the church in Macedonia was saying. So Paul, an explanation that Paul brings follows the pattern that he's talking about. He says the why moves to the what. The church in Macedonia, in giving, in surrounding by the trees of their trial, remember the wood. And that's what makes the difference. In the message it says, what explains it was that they had first given themselves unreservedly to God and to us. What is the great commandment? Do you remember it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind and love your neighbour as yourself. They first gave themselves to God and then gave themselves to us because you cannot do the first without doing the second. (coughs) Challenges to give, I think, fall flat when they fall short of a context that places everything within the frame of discipleship. Why do we give here? This isn't giving like children in need. We don't say we want a totalizer and we're going to go up and we will then be able to pay for all these things. That's not why we give, even though I'm not saying it's bad to give the children need, actually. We give because we have discovered something about Jesus who has given everything for us, and we are in Christ. Now, what that means is that what is true of Christ's character becomes more and more true of us as we walk with him. And if that's true, we will be generous as people. We will want to be generous. We will be putting our hands up saying, please, can I help? Please, can I help? That's what we'll be saying. The what that emerges in this offering is an expression of the why that is at the heart. Such is the way of the church in Macedonia. And Paul is writing to the church in Corinth because clearly it is not naturally the way of the church in Corinth. And here comes the slightly provocative bit. He says, I've told you about the church in Macedonia. Aren't they great? Aren't they great? And of course everyone in Corinth says, yeah, they're brilliant, they are. And then Paul says, yeah, I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Not talking about amounts. He's talking about a heart response to what is given. And what this heart response is testing is the sincerity of the love that's there. If you are sincere about something, it leads to action, doesn't it? Do you want to hear my very simple answer to that? Um, I used to teach this lesson at school. And I said... Um, um, I said... Um, if somebody, if you were talking to people, a showman was saying, do you believe in gas cookers? And you're, so you're refitting your kitchen. Do you believe in gas cookers? And, uh, and you said yes. What you're not saying is it that you have heard of gas cookers. You've never seen one, but you believe they exist. That's not what you're saying. You're saying you're putting your faith in gas cookers. And if you genuinely are fitting your kitchen and you say, yes, I believe in gas cookers, and then you buy an electric one, then you weren't very sincere about the fact that you believe in gas cookers, were you? The implication is, if you believe in gas cookers and then you're going to buy a cooker, you're going to buy a gas cooker. That's what you do. So too, if you you say that you love Jesus and you go through the motions of it, 
then it will come out and in, in an expression of that as you live your life. This is called integrity. The word is wholeness. No um, break between any part of your life. I, I have a mixed relation with vision statements. Quite often if you go to ministers' conferences, they'll say, what's the vision of your church? In fact, when I came here for interview, um, Jerry asked me, what's, I had to do a presentation, what's the, your vision for the church? Oh, I don't know. I said, I, can't, I don't know. Vision's obvious, isn't it? Well, love God, love Jesus, you know, and love your neighbor. That's basically the vision. But we have statements and they do help. So we are an extended family. We are growing and being transformed in Jesus Christ and we are sharing the good news wherever we go. If that mission statement is just a dusty poster on a wall and we don't come back from time to time and say, do we believe in this? Why do we believe in this? And what are the what's that come out of this? Then it means absolutely nothing. And I know I use this illustration a lot, but it's true if you're married here and you wear a wedding ring, it's to remind you of promises that you made and a place on a particular occasion. The ring means nothing. It's whether you live out those promises to love, cherish, honour. Difficult, those things, sometimes. Sometimes easy. So, as a church, we know our why. We've written it down. And if we're sincere, then we will live that out. That's what it means. So this week is... Um, this week is Commitment Sunday, and we're moving towards this. And I want to close by having two little sub-points which Paul makes here. First one is a, re a reference to Magnus Magnusson. If you're a young person here, you won't know what I'm talking about. I realize this halfway through this. Uh, there is a program on telly called Mastermind. Have you ever seen it? Have you ever seen Mastermind? You're my go-to person, Freddie. Do you know that? This is young person. You've seen Mastermind. There used to be this bloke called Magnus Magnusson. What was his catchphrase? Yeah, everyone knows it. I've started, so I'll finish. I've started, so I'll finish. And Paul writes in this thing, is if you are sincere, don't just start, finish. Finish what you've begun. Don't just run off on, on a wave of enthusiasm and say these things and don't do anything about it. You have promised to do something, now do it. Now I genuinely think this is a deeply challenging verse that's here. I genuinely think that it's deeply challenging where he says, now finish the work that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it. Because in church, we tend to celebrate those lively folk who stand at the front and go around saying, I've got an idea, listen to this. And everybody goes, yeah, that's a great idea. And sometimes those people who jump around at the front and say, I've got an idea, listen to this, are not the people who say, I'm going to work steadily through it until it is completed. Because it's a different skill, isn't it? So we need each other. And in our giving, if you say you're going to give something, then give. If you say you're going to follow Jesus, then follow Jesus. The sincerity of our conviction about why is demonstrated in following through in delivering on the what. And the second thing here, which I just wanted to say, is, well, you might be thinking here, well, what should I give, therefore, towards the church? And interestingly, Paul has two different answers here. Um, or maybe they're not two different answers. He says about the church in Macedonia... They gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. And then he says to the church in Corinth, if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Are these two things in contrast with each other, do you think? Are they in contradiction? What do you think? 
I don't think they are, is the answer. You are called to be generous, but you can only be generous with what you have. That's what it says. So when you decide on what you're going to give and you follow Mike Webb's very wise advice in praying about this, you will give out of what you have, not out of what you don't have. You can't give what you don't have, can you? Sometimes there will be people in this room who feel bad because they don't think they're giving enough. But they've given all that they can give. You can only do so much. Alex was with me and a couple of others in here walking up a mountain earlier this year. And um, we were in Scotland. Boy, was it cold. 40 mile an hour winds. Hail coming down. Six inches of snow. Poor visibility. We'd been walking for a couple of hours, two and a half hours. We'd said we were going to get to the top. I'm at the back of the line. I'm only a little fella. I walk along. First of all, the ice becomes compacted, and I'm slipping around all over the place trying to keep my feet. Then the ice is replaced by six inches of snow. And twice within about a minute, I fall over and I'm lying in the snow. I'm wearing my glasses and I come up, I can't see a thing. I look around, I can't see any of the people who were with me. I, don't, I feel a little bit ashamed, or maybe not, to say at that moment, I had a little panic. Not a big panic, but a little panic. I thought, I don't know where I am. It's freezing cold. I'm lying on my ground, I can't see anything, I don't know the way. And then Ali's husband, Chris, who was with us, popped out into my field of vision and said, are you all right, Steve? I said, not really. And I said to him, I don't think I can go any further. I think I have to turn back. Ever since that moment, I've been asking myself a question. Was that a good thing to say or a bad thing to say? And I don't know. Did I give in too easily? Or was I wise? Five other people thought I was reasonably wise because they came down with me at the time. The sad thing is I didn't know that it was only 150 metres to the top. Or 300 metres. So, when we give, we cannot give what we do not have. And there's nothing wrong with that. What matters is, I think, and this is what I think about Ben Nevis, what matters to me is, I got there, and that was a real achievement for me. And that is what matters. So, how are you going to respond to giving this year as the time comes up? This is the second session in the long road to the cross. We say God has given up everything to provide for us. Therefore, how do we respond to him? That's the why, but what about the what that goes on with this? And I want to ask you what Commitment Sunday will mean is tomorrow morning you'll get a mailing in your email inbox or next week you'll get a hard copy if you haven't got email. And it will talk there about uh, the appeal that we have and it will ask you to complete a pledge. And the pledge basically, it doesn't matter whether you're increasing what you're giving or decreasing or keeping it the same, but it is a pledge to say this is what I'm going to be committed to giving. It is the what behind my why. And of course the challenge of Macedonia is to be generous. And the advice of Corinth is not to feel bad about not being able to give when you haven't got. So I want to commend that to you, and we're going to pray. We're going to have a response in a moment when the children come in. I think they're just about coming in now. But I wonder whether Angela could come up and lead us in one song, and then we'll, we'll follow into that in a moment.
Let's pray as they're coming up there. I want you to remember uh, for a moment, think about all the what's that are facing you in your life. All the practical questions that you're worried and concerned about. What if this? What if I can't do that? What happens if this happens? And Father, we ask now into the midst of our heart you would bring the why. You would remind us that we are living for you. And that means that we have received things and we can live out of that resource. We hold ourselves open before you and ask that you would give us what we need, whether that means peace at times of anxiety, provision at times of shortcoming, health at times of illness, company in times of illness, courage in face of challenge. Help us to see Jesus this morning. Amen. Thank you, Andrew.